This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving a five-star review, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for this podcast are in the show notes. Today, we focus in on an empire in a tailspin. The indomitable Eastern Roman Empire is shaken and unstable, and this does not bode well for what the Normans in the South have in store for them unless someone can take control of this wayward ship. Today's episode, episode 101, is entitled The Rudderless Empire. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. was 1004, and Emperor Basil II sent a political delegation to the swamplands along the northern Adriatic coast, the coasts along modern-day Italy. The small but growing city was called Venice. The Venice of 1004 was still a far, far cry away from the beautiful vacation destination it is today but it was certainly standing on its own legs at that time and was beginning to weld its own power and influence, namely by way of maritime wealth. Its fleet of citizen merchants and other wealthier individuals in the city were practicing a strange anomaly throughout all of human history. It was a form of self-government. Now, it certainly held very little resemblance to our modern take on self-governance, but it was, by definition, a form of self-government all the same. And in a medieval world surrounded on all sides by kings, warlords, archbishops, and emperors, the doge was quite strange indeed. See, the city of Venice had a leader they called the doge, and the doge was, get this, elected. Yeah, crazy, right? The male citizens in Venice were able to choose their own civic ruler, Again, it's a far cry from term limits and other regulations we've built into our myriad of representative governments around the world today, but a certain number of people were able to elect who led them going forward. The Doge served until one of three things happened. One, he died. Two, he was overthrown. Or three, he abdicated his seat of power. Now, clearly the third one rarely, if ever, happened, but the first two were quite commonplace. In 1004, as the first Normans were capitalizing off of a key marriage into the English royal family and more favorable unspoken alliances with Viking raiders, as the Cordoba Caliphate was suffering under suffocating leadership, as Poland was pushing quickly uphill to become a legitimate regional influence, as Brian Baru was reigning high in Ireland. As all of this happening, little Venice welcomed an empirical delegation from the grandest city in the world, Constantinople. Sure, Constantinople, under Emperor Basil II, 
was sending envoys to all parts. But, as Lars Brownwer said in his book, Lost to the West, the one quoted at the end of the last episode, I should add, quote, the empire that Basil II left behind him was indeed glorious. No power in Western Europe or the Middle East could approach it, end quote. But foreign policy to successful nations, it never ends. <laughs> but what came of this little visit to this little backwater port city was something more enduring than you'd expect. See, Venetians were appropriately showing deference to the empire. They were understandably humble, but they were surprised by the sophistication from Constantinople. Doge Pietro II Orsiolo had been pushing for Venice to step up its own for a while, up to 1004. Accepting envoys like the one from Constantinople was all part and parcel for Pietro's plans for Venetian expansion. It was during Pietro II's rule that Venice pulled itself out from the swamps, literally, actually, and started pushing inland as well. And Pietro II embarked on a small fleet-building campaign, which is why the Adriatic saw an ever-increasing number of Venetian merchant ships crisscrossing the waves. And it's worth noting that under Pietro II, the Venetian neighborhood within Constantinople itself saw a boom. So our little go story goes like this. So one night, Pietro II and his fellow citizens sat down to a meal across from the Byzantine delegation. According to Brownworth, quote, a Byzantine aristocrat named Maria sparked enormous interest in Venice, end quote. As the Venetians scooped their food with their fingers, the common custom around Europe at the time, well, this lady, Maria, well, she picked a tool up that she proceeded to use to keep the food off of her fingers. Brownworth writes that Maria shocked the onlookers, quote, eating with an ancient Roman double-pronged golden instrument. Touted as the latest word in sophistication, the device became enormously popular, and soon the fork was common throughout the West. End quote. Brownworth's book is subtitled The Forgotten Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. I couldn't agree more, to be quite honest. The fork is pretty awesome, so... Thanks, Maria. Appreciate it. Now, this little soiree was famous, this little party that was thrown by Pietro II Orsiolo. It was famous, really, only as the officially documented entrance of the fork to Europe. That's it. But it also showed Venice's expanding notoriety. Basil II knew it, and Venetians would capitalize on it over the ensuing decades. But while Venice was expanding its wealth, influence, and power during the first half of the 11th century, the opposite can be said for the Eastern Roman Empire. Well, after 1025, when Basil II died, that is. Brownworth tells us, quote, By the time of Basil's death, Constantinople was home to brilliant poets, jurists, and historians, a glittering collection of literati, that wouldn't be equaled in the West until the last days of the Renaissance, end quote. But after 1025, led by a steady stream of lazy and corrupt emperors and empresses, 
it quickly turned into, quote, ruthless taxation, once again falling on the poor without burdening the rich, end quote, as well as the, quote unquote, above the law attitude by Byzantine elites and emperors, quote, leaving the peasants at the mercy of their predatory neighbors, end quote. Not too much has changed, it sounds like, in many parts of the world. Inflation, devalued currency, dwindling trade, all complete reversals from the golden days of Basil II plagued the empire in the east. This caused a spiraling effect. Farmers were forced back to their properties to not only make sure every harvest was a good harvest, but to also protect their properties from empowered roving bands and Turkish raiders in Anatolia. With these peasants refusing to leave their homes, this left the military in some pretty dire straits. Throw in some political corruption back in Constantinople itself, and you see why Maniakes, George Maniakes, was unable to conquer Sicily in the name of the emperor. This weakened military was, Brownworth writes, quote-unquote, forced to rely on mercenaries. Hence the use of Normans in Sicily. And, quote, important commands were given to worthless political appointments, end quote. Brownworth called the mid-11th century Eastern Roman Empire a, quote-unquote, rudderless empire. So what came from all of these economic, social, and political collapses was the collapse of the citizen-soldier. Well, that's what we call him today anyway, but back then, citizen had a very different connotation. It was more like Brownworth says, the quote-unquote peasant soldier. See, standard Byzantine practice was similar to ancient Roman military practices in terms of empowering landowners to serve in the military, believing that men would fight harder for their own lands than for someone else's. It kind of makes sense. As for the Byzantines, they awarded veterans with lands on the far fringes of the empire, especially if those areas were taken during, during conquest of some sort. They filled these areas with these former soldiers, which not only served to repurpose these borderlands for specifically Byzantine gain, agriculture and whatnot, but also provide an experienced buffer against outsiders that may be encroaching. Now think about it. They may have been released from military service, but these were still soldiers, many of them with real battle experience. It was an ever-expanding wall of defense that Constantinople was creating. Pretty, pretty brilliant move, if you ask me, at least in theory. Now, however, <laughs> however, as corruption sank its evil talons into the empire, fewer and fewer soldiers showed up for duty when called upon, and with fewer soldiers came more violent tactics to force them to show up. With this came, naturally, resentment. But the empire was still finding it's increasingly difficult, it increasingly difficult to pay the men who did show up. You see the problem here. The Eastern Roman Empire was finding it nearly impossible to maintain an effective military, and without an effective military, well the borderlands began to shrink with outsiders smelling blood in the water. The Bulgars and Pechenegs to the northwest, the Normans in southern Italy, can't forget, southern Italy was owned by uh, Constantinople, 
in the early to mid-11th century. The Muslims in the south and a new group of traditionally nomadic horse-mounted warriors from deep within the Central Asian steppes called Seljuk Turks. It was clear by the mid-11th century that the Eastern Roman Empire, the true heirs to the original Roman Empire, were being hemmed in on virtually all sides. The last thing, and I mean the very last thing, it needed was a crumbling political, economic, and moral infrastructure from within. And sadly, it is now abundantly clear that that's exactly what happened. In the book, The Komneni Dynasty, Byzantium's Struggle for Survival, 1057 to 1158, author John Carr calls one of his chapters, A Hard Act to Follow, which set out to map the sad decay of Constantinople after the death of the great Basil II. Have I mentioned the death of Basil II enough already? You know, the death of the emperor, the, the Bulgar slayer, the one who died in 1025? Yeah, Basil II his death. Well, it's because I keep mentioning it because everything that happens to Constantinople after 1025 is due to the gaping vacuum left in Basil's wake. One Byzantine historian quoted here by Brownworth in Lost to the West said the following of the empire upon Basil's death. He, he quote, wrote, quote, everywhere the might of Roman arms was respected and feared. The treasury was full to overflowing with the plunder of Basil's campaigns. Even the lamp of learning, despite the emperor's known indifference, was burning still. The lot of ordinary folk in Constantinople must have been pleasant enough. For most of them, life was colorful, and if the city's defensive fortifications were at some points in disrepair, they had no cause to dread attacks. End quote. John Carr he gives us a clear indication as to how history treats the gap between 1025 and the start of the next dynasty of emperors in 1057, when he leaves only a page and a half to discuss these years. So what does he mean by a hard act to follow? Well, we kind of saw that already, but can we begin by stating a not unimpressive statistic of Basil II's? This guy was the longest-serving emperor in Roman history. Roman history. Now, don't misunderstand what I said there. The year is, right, 1025, and Basil II was the longest-serving emperor since Caesar Augustus. That record covers over 150 emperors and takes up 49 years in the 1,052-year history up to Basil's death. 49 years. Looking at Roman history, you'll rarely find a reign of more than, say, what, 15? Maybe 20 years? But this guy lasted 49 years. I mean, it's not nothing, right? Basil II was certainly a hard act to follow since the majority of the population throughout the Eastern Roman Empire had known no other emperor. And even if they had been alive, they almost certainly couldn't remember the reign of Basil's predecessor. What's his name? Emperor John I Semitzes, right? Probably couldn't even pronounce it at that point after 49 years. When Basil died, you know, in 1025, sorry, sorry, it bears repeating, I'm telling you, it's a very important year. 
Well, in 1025, when he died, his brother, the lazy loafer, Constantine VIII, was already 60 years old. And he wanted, he wanted nothing to do with being emperor. He hadn't spent one damn day of his entire life prepping for the possibility of his brother kicking the bucket and leaving him in charge. Not one day. Remember, 49 years. Now, Constantine VIII was like, well, if Marcus Aurelius hadn't devoted his life to public service and quiet contemplation in the Stoic tradition and just enjoyed living in the shadow of his adopted father, Emperor Antoninus Pius, who served about as long as his father, Hadrian, served, which is between 20 and 25 years, I caution you not to underestimate the rarity of men like Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, and Basil II. And like Marcus Aurelius, Basil II also had a successor who would, well, pervert and twist the power of the emperor. Marcus Aurelius had his son, Commodus. Basil II had his brother, Constantine VIII. Constantine VIII lived a life of luxury, riding the coattails of his immensely popular warrior emperor brother, and was happy to merely fly under the radar in that incredibly long shadow. But he wasn't just a lump on a log. He had a twisted streak, too. Constantine VIII spent his days sleeping and his nights submerged in barrels of wine, watching, well, we'll call them um, explicit performances. Yeah, that's, we'll just leave that at that. In the royal palace, by the way, in Constantinople. And if he didn't like you, he basically Uday Husseined you and personally tortured you in his own private torture chambers. In 1028, the same year that the future William the Conqueror was born, just to help us all keep this things in perspective on the podcast, well, in 1028, the villainous Emperor Constantine VIII died, having easily served as one of the worst and most ineffective emperors in Eastern Roman history, if not all of Roman history. And his middle daughter, he had three daughters, no sons, his middle daughter, Zoe Porphyrogenitus, which is Greek for Zoe born in the purple, as a nod to her royal birth, by the way. Well, she had previously married a strange old man, a Byzantine senator, who became Emperor Romanus III. Excuse me, try that one again. Emperor Romanus III. This marriage was undeniably a political marriage, a marriage of status, nothing more. Romanus III was old, but he took to the position of emperor admirably, actually. The problem was that he, for whatever reason, we really have no idea, whatever reason, refused to consummate the marriage with Zoe. And Zoe, like her father, had needs, apparently, and she hooked up with a pretty boy less than half her age named Michael Paphlagonian. After a handful of years, Emperor Romanus III was found drowned, though with how quickly Zoe unemotionally elevated her boy toy to the throne, history has pretty much pinned Romanus III's death, nay, his assassination, squarely on her shoulders. So it's 1034, 1035, and we have another new emperor in Constantinople. Remember, the, we had one last 49 years, and now we've already had, we're on our second one in you know what, eight years, maybe 10 years now. Empress Zoe stood beside her new husband, the newly christened Emperor Michael IV, 
But this guy is exactly what you'd expect from some young boy toy. There just wasn't much leadership to him, but he sure loved the idea of being emperor. He had another issue, too. He was prone to seizures, something we today call epilepsy. Zoe, being the privileged you-know-what she was, found other playthings to busy herself with, and as Michael IV's health sadly declined, he, as John Carr says, in an effort to, quote, ease his conscience, he devoted himself to good works and gestures of abject and prostrate divine worship, end quote. Now, Carr continues with, quote, in 1041, barely able to stand or ride, he nevertheless, by sheer force of will, campaigned against the Bulgars and defeated them outside Thessaloniki, end quote. Now, that's pretty impressive. Before his 30th birthday, barely returned to Constantinople to great fanfare, Michael IV died. Against the will of a powerful wife and Empress Zoe, he had begun a promising reign, but it was cut short and he simply didn't have the opportunity to solidify exactly what kind of emperor he was looking to be remembered as. Tis the life of any leader, I suppose. Once again, a leader spun the wheel and fortune brought him a sad early death. Now, before Michael IV died, he and Empress Zoe had adopted the emperor's distant cousin, who was scooped up from the shipyards his father came from and placed squarely on the Eastern Roman throne. He was a teenager, and anyone who knows anything about teenage emperors in history knows that this was probably not going to turn out well. Michael Caliphates became Emperor Michael V, and he immediately booted Empress Zoe from her titles and privileges, cutting her hair on the way out. She was surprised by the move and nearly hairless, found herself humiliated and exiled on the island of Principo nearby. Yeah, this didn't sit well with folks in Constantinople. I mean, Zoe Porphyrogenitos, it's in her name if you think about it. Zoe wasn't a saint by any stretch, but the vast majority of folks in the empire weren't aware of her gamesmanship behind the scenes, her manipulation, and most certainly her promiscuity. In their eyes, Zoe was truly purple-born, the daughter of an emperor and niece of the great Basil II. People were ticked, to say the least. Michael V's palace was rampaged, and he was dragged just as humiliatingly in front of the city as Zoe, where a member of the Pharangian Guard, the emperor's personal bodyguard, remember, proceeded to gouge out the teenager's eyes. And knowing the prestige and status of this man, as mentioned in the records, the Varangian guardsman who most likely did the public blinding was none other than a young Harold Hardrada, some 25 years before he would fall at Stamford Bridge attempting to overthrow the English king, Harold Godwinson. Well, what do you do with a blind former emperor? You ship him off to a monastery, of course, and and re-enter Zoe Porphyrogenitos into the palace. And, by the way, enter a younger sister, who, up to this point in history, that is 1042, had been cast aside and forgotten about. Well, at least in senatorial and imperial conversations. Her name was Theodora, and she was a pretty cool individual, certainly for the time period. Theodora, again, was Zoe's younger sister, and it should be should have been Theodora 
who married her father's successor, not Zoe. And the story goes that Constantine was forcing Theodora to marry Romanus Argyros, that was Romanus III. But on the basis of consanguinity, they were cousins only three times removed officially, she flatly refused. Makes sense. From there, shows you what kind of person Zoe is, from there Zoe married Romanus Argyros three days before Constantine's death, and the rest has played out as I've said. As for Theodora, she was pushed out of the picture entirely, returning to the woman's wing of the palace. Yes, they had a woman's wing of the palace called the Ganesium, where she faded into the background. Well, that was the plan anyway. Zoe was a jealous older sister, and she hired spies to oversee the Ganesium to make sure that Theodora wasn't trying to play any funny games. Whether she was or not is entirely up for speculation, but Zoe certainly thought she was, because Theodora was implicated in a couple potential coups, though nothing was ever proven. In fact, records don't really shine Theodora in the light of a conspirator, to be quite honest. I mean, she flat out refused to marry the accepted successor to the crown, meaning she was specifically staying out of the limelight. Ultimately, however, in 1031, Zoe forced Theodora into a nunnery where she would stay for 11 years. Let's do some math here. This brings us back up to the year 1042. Zoe, just before the blinding and exile of Michael V, chose to take the throne for herself, spurning a husband entirely. Michael V still held the crown, but she was making her triumphant return. The problem was that the constellation of political machinations and assassinations began to catch up with her, and the elites demanded she bring her little sister back to be co-empress. A group of noblemen spoke with Theodora, now having spent more than a decade in a nun's garb and devoting her life to nothing but quiet contemplation and daily religious practices. She wanted even less to do with politics and the empire. She was quite happy to live out her days the way she had already, but the men, they disagreed. She ran to the sanctuary for divine protection, but the men stormed the chapel and dragged her against her will out and back to the palace where she was stripped of her habit and dressed as an empress. Theodora, it said, was beside herself in rage, but had no other choice but to acquiesce. As the sun rose on April 21, 1042, both Zoe and Theodora were formerly co excuse me, crowned co-empresses of the Eastern Roman Empire. They weren't the first empresses in Byzantine history, but they were certainly unicorns to say something about them. Now, Theodora, being the junior empress, wasn't supposed to be put in charge of such a high-ranking situation like the one regarding what to do with the emperor currently residing in the palace. We're going back before his blinding, by the way. I'm sorry I didn't set that up quite well enough. I admit that. But Zoe was ready to make amends and pardon the teenager. And that was a complete 180 from the prevailing opinions of the senators in the city. They wanted Michael V out. So they enlisted Theodora to handle the situation. And it was Theodora who surveyed the situation and ultimately damned the boy to blinding and exile. Theodora was principled, straightforward, and fair by reputation. Everything Zoe was not. When Zoe heard what had happened, 
Theodora feared entering the palace until Zoe gave a formal promise of safety, which she eventually did. But this dynamic was unsustainable. Zoe was already on the move to marry yet again, ready to take on a third husband in order to oust Theodora. The problem was is that the situation didn't just involve a petty older sister jealous of her younger sister. It involved the court and the people as well, who began dividing themselves up behind each empress. And Theodora was drawing the majority. So after all that, it wasn't two months and Theodora was ousted as co-empress. Yikes. Now on June 11, 1042, as John Carr writes, quote, Zoe and Constantine Monomachus, who became Constantine IX, were married in Sancta Sophia, end quote. And I should say that Sancta Sophia is just another word for the Hagia Sophia, the amazingly beautiful building there in Constantinople. And as it were, Zoe and Constantine Monomachus lived happily ever after with their empire full of adoring fanatics. Come on, you know that's not the case. Carr writes, quote, It was not long before Constantine admitted to a long-standing affair with a much younger woman. Had he been a strong ruler, that could have been forgiven. Instead, he neglected the army and had the humiliation of witnessing the most portentous historical event of his reign, the final traumatic schism between the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches in 1054. The late Roman Empire could expect no more aid or sympathy from old Rome. End quote. Put a pin in that one, yeah? Now, Constantine IX ruled with a more powerful Zoe working alongside him, mind you, for 12 years or so before just months post-schism, he died of an extremely long, chilly bath. You heard that correctly. I don't know. His wife has a record of dead husbands, one of them being found dead in a swimming pool. So something tells me Constantine the Ninth just failed to stand, just failed to stand up when the bath got too cold. It just doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Call me crazy, but it's very likely that Constantine the Ninth was assassinated as well. Zoe loves to pin herself alongside a drowned husband. It looks like. Now I'll let. John Carr wrap a nice, neat little bow on the once gargantuan Macedonian dynasty of Eastern Roman rulers. He writes, quote, By this time, Zoe too had passed away, leaving Theodora to resume her palace on the throne, where she and her sister had left off 13 years before. At 77 years of age, Theodora was capable enough, but after a year and a half of rule, she has succumbed to a devastating intestinal malady. Thus did the great dynasty of the Macedonians slide to its end. The date was 31st August, 1056, end quote. So the powerful Eastern Roman Empire had suffered from poor leadership, assassinations, political intrigue, and corrupt nobility for 31 years after the death of the great Basil II, when it was at its zenith of domination and influence. On the next episode, we'll take a look at the stirrings of the next great dynastic line of empires, the line of the Komneni. And I can't wait to tell you about this one. Mm-hmm.